Welcome again to another episode of Float Your Boat. Season seven. Season seven and episode number. We still haven't been able to count beyond 50, so we're we're right up there near 100, aren't we, at the moment? I have trouble counting past 21. We didn't get it. We didn't. We we didn't have a firm number of previous episode, and we still don't on this episode. But uh, irrespective, Brett, who do we have on today? Today we have a chap named Simon Rumney. And uh, what's Simon Rumney famous for? Well, he's just got a great story, and you and I have been talking about um, you know season seven and the stories we want to um, record and. Yeah. Simon is one of these guys that just has an absolutely cracking story and a a, a journey, basically, his life journey, really. Yes, and it's a cracking story because because he's been uh, trying to find himself, I guess, for the last, uh, well, well, since the age of five, so that would, since 1960. Yeah. It's um I, I, look you 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 and I know what the episode's about because we've actually recorded the episode and we've come back to do the um preamble or the um let's not give away too much shall we let's Together. not give away too much but um a warning on this episode is that the sound is intermittent because he is in um the far north of Queensland at what um and the sound is pretty terrible throughout. Yeah. Well, I mean, when he's speaking, it's fine, but it cuts in and out because obviously there's, you know, way up there, there's just not as good a internet, et cetera. And unfortunately, we have to do everything on Zoom or something similar. And uh, I was getting quite frustrated throughout the episode because it's such a great story. It's such a great story, isn't it, George? Yeah, it's unfortunate. But, you know, that's that's Australia for you and NBN. That don't cover the whole country at the moment. No, unfortunately, it doesn't, and uh, and it's evident evident in this episode. But nevertheless, if you can um, stick with it, everybody, because uh, this guy has a great story, um, uh, and he tells a great story. He's a great. He he spins a great yarn, doesn't he, George? Mm, he does. So let's get on with it, Georgie boy. Yes, thank you, Brett. We'll do that. This is uh, a great episode with Simon Rumney. Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Simon, welcome to our show, our podcast. It's not a show, but uh, so have you heard, do you know anything about our podcast by any chance? Uh, No, uh, Lindsay Cliff who you interviewed last year, <coughs> excuse me, she she, rec- she suggested that I might be a good candidate, but uh, no, I don't. 
Okay. Yeah, well, that goes that's a good start. As soon as you said that, I felt really useless. I should have gone and done some research. <laughs> not at all, not at all. We only have two dogs and a cat listening to this show anyway, so that's okay. not true. That's not true. Our our statistics look pretty bloody good globally, but we don't uh, we don't see them physically, so we don't know for certain. <laughs> we could have all manner of people listening to our podcasts that we don't Correct. know. Correct. Well, you need something controversial to get clicks. Well, that's why you're on the show, Simon. Today, yeah. let's let's see if we can. I was, I was in the I was in the Capitol building. Oh, yeah, that's where you were, and, you, and you've retreated <laughs> yes. to a. There you are. There's, there's, your, there's your headline. Yeah, I defied I defied yeah. quarantine, got on a plane, went to America, and I was in the Capitol building. Yeah. Were you the guy with the horns and the um and the raccoon skin? <laughs> Yeah, well, I've, 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 I've got to say a representation, a representation of humanity's finest. I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> I I heard I heard uh, somebody say in one of those podcast things that Trump was really disappointed at the quality of his protesters. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, that's the pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think he was expecting he people. He was expecting people in blue suits and ties. What he got was something completely different. <laughs> they were they were they were raccoon skin hats and and fur coats. Yeah, I mean, and more he, he worryingly, in combat gear too. That was worrying. Mm, it certainly is. Whereabouts are you living um, at the moment, Simon? Don't give away the exact address because we don't want uh, stalkers turning up on your doorstep. But, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. But to answer that first question, I mean, put a pin in any any stage of my life and it's it's going to be weird because I'm a complete nutcase. Right. But, we like but, that. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and there's a, it's, a, it's a weird story. It's a story I wish I hadn't lived. But it's kind of a lot of people find it interesting. But to answer the second question, I'm in Queensland. I've spent the last uh, 20 years living on beaches around Asia, and then I got ill and nearly died in Goa. And I thought I was getting a bit old for just living on beaches in the third world. So I came back to Australia and I took a van, and I've been going round and round Australia. And to answer your question, when COVID hit, I usually come up to far north Queensland during uh, the southern hemisphere winter, not the southern winter, as it were. Mm. And I come to Queensland for winter, and I'm usually in Trinity Beach for three months. And I did that this year for three months. But then when COVID hit, I left the van because it was too hot to live in the van. And I've taken an apartment, which is where I am now. And and I'm staying here until COVID sorts itself out, effectively. So far north Queensland, Trinity Beach, 18 kilometres north of Cairns. Uh, I imagine, I imagine uh, people will be able to find you because it's only a small village, right? So, oh, absolutely. And if you go to the pub, if you go to the pub, you'll probably see me in it. <laughs> that's a strange place. That's a strange so, yeah. place for you to gather. <laughs> so, so if I was a fugitive. <laughs> Well, let's go back a bit because 
you seem to have the life of a fugitive, like you were trying to get away from something. But let's go way back. I've lived. That's that's such a good observation. I've lived my life like a fugitive. I've been on the run ever since. Not nothing illegal, just running no. away from myself. You know. That yes. Time. Yes. There's only one problem with that, um, Simon. You, you, you uh, Woody can't... Allen, wherever you. <laughs> yeah, wherever you go there you are yeah, yeah that's right that's right that's right <laughs> but let's let's go back to the dark ages because i detect a a, a, a slight accent a foreign accent and yeah. uh so let's let's start with uh you know where you where you grew up and um and what eventually led you to come here right uh born in england 10 years after the second world war 1955 the year rationing ended in England. So right. that gives you sort of a background. My father was uh, deeply disturbed from his experience in the war, you know, D-Day, occupying Germany, that whole thing. Uh, and But he was a clever man, working class man in London, but bright and did well, set up businesses and moved us to the country. So I was born in the countryside uh, and grew up with a different accent than my parents, who were Londoners, and, and I was born in the countryside, educated in the countryside, educated laughingly. Um, and so I was born in the beautiful countryside of England um, and uh, had an idyllic childhood, supposedly. I now know it, it wasn't. But uh, so I used to spend the first five years of my life was just spent communing with nature, walking through the fields and by the rivers and all that sort of thing. What do you say? It wasn't idyllic. Uh, I didn't know I was unhappy. Oh, you were unhappy? Uh, deeply unhappy. And luckily now, I have friends up here. One is a professor of psychiatry and his mate down in Sydney is an eminent psychiatrist. And between them, they've been working on... I mean, I've been seeing shrinks for 30 years, but... In his last couple of years, I've made some real breakthroughs with the help of my friend. Uh, I'm getting a sign here saying my internet connection is unstable. Can you still see me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you yep. sure it's just the internet? Yeah, maybe it heard about my, me being unstable. It's gone on sympathy with me. So, so but, anyway, so the, but, but, do you think? Yeah, go on. You think that was genetic? I mean, in hindsight, I mean, you know, you have the benefit of many years of hindsight, but was it genetic or environmental, do you think? Uh, I thought it was genetic originally. My first shrink thought it was genetic, but now I know it's environmental. Sadly, my mother was a psychopath. I didn't know that. And my father had what we now call PTSD. So he couldn't love and she did love. So I, I had no love, effectively. That's that's the point. And, and of course, nobody, well, very few people actually realise that that's what's going on. It's the problem. So you look. Every, I looked everywhere else for the problem. And, and, and only when I found that could I go back and repair the foundation. So it's the, the old saying, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, what, what do you, I mean, obviously, it, it's obvious to us why your dad had PTSD. Uh, I mean, that must have been traumatic yeah, what he it, went through. But your mum, you, you labelled her as a psychopath. I mean, how? My mother, was a, my mother was a psychopath, sadly. So, and I didn't know that. Nobody knows that. But a psychopath is, uh, 
all psychopaths are narcissists and all narcissists need control and and i'm a what they call a super empath so my brother's not an empath he's he's more on genetically her side of things right. but i was an empath so i needed i needed love which she could manipulate so that was you know, it's a boo-hoo, boo-hoo. But it, the, these are the facts. It's not, yes. I'm not blaming her. It's not her fault. She was, I don't believe she was a, uh, a sociopath, which is learned. She was actually a psychopath, which is genetic. It's born. Right. But it wasn't her fault. That's just how it was. And I was, I was, that was the anvil that I was forged on. And, and it's sad. My my father, before he died, I, I we, we expressed love. And he, he was so regretful that he couldn't be there for me during my childhood because he kind of, towards the end, it, he, he dealt with it and, and sort of, you know, he just couldn't, he couldn't do it. It wasn't his fault. He's, he's the same personality as me, but he just could not love. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I just can't imagine. I mean, if he faced D-Day and then... Oh all the subsequent battles leading into Germany and where you, you know, every day you're thinking, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to survive. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yes. And think about the fact that when the war started, so he, he only, he only joined up in 1944. So he had 39, 38, 40, 41, 42 to, to, to build up to it. Mm. Can you imagine, like, sitting at home as a teenager, waiting to go to a possible death? Yeah. I mean, what would that do to you psychologically? You know, you know, it's, it's, I can't imagine what it did to him. And then being recruited, trained, and then going to D-Day, and then fighting the way through Europe. I, I, can't, I can't imagine how he thought, how he wasn't a basket case. I feel... Yeah terrible sympathy for him now but, but then he didn't talk about it it was like a lid was right. screwed down so tight so the poor man in what the poor man so he couldn't express himself at all not his generation and of course we didn't want to hear it because she didn't she she had an image of who we were we we we, we had, you know local boy done good he had made good money we'd moved to the countryside build a house we'd been in a different group of friends and that's she her her whole life was about image so she didn't need a man who was, was weak as she perceived as weak so he had no outlet for man and uh you know but it is what it is isn't it and the, and and of course divorce was out of the question in those days so so, so. absolutely out of the question yeah, yeah. and and so they grinned they grinned and bared it until they eventually kind of made a compromise and and, and my father would sort of run off. He was a, he, he actually started life as a cabinet. So he had a, he had a big workshop next to the house and just went in there and built furniture. I mean, every day there was a new piece of furniture or a cuckoo clock or something, you know, just, that was his escape. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was his life, sadly. And, and that was, that was, where I grew up, I, and I, I didn't know that being in pain wasn't right, wasn't yeah. normal, being in mental pain as I was. Yeah. But 
So I walked around the fields, as I said earlier, I was walked around the fields, went by the rivers, looked at the birds, was, you know, and I thought that was happiness. The fact that my mind was in a constant state of stress, I thought that was normal, yeah. uh, but, but it was doable. And then I went to school at the age of five and the whole thing fell apart. Uh, when you say the whole thing fell apart when you went to school, um, what do you what do you mean by that? Like, uh... well, it, it, it just it just everything just kept coming one after the other. It was like I went to school, and I hadn't really been around uh, anybody. I, I'd been in the countryside by myself. I had a few one or two friends. So putting me into a school was completely alien. I didn't really know. I didn't really know how to interact with other people. So I. I became a clown to sort of uh, compensate for that. So I could make people laugh. Um, so I did that. So I became a clown. Um, and then I and then I uh, I couldn't read and write, and I was punished for it. Whatever that whatever they did, they couldn't make me read and write. And I seemed bright, so they thought I was being defiant. So they told my parents that I was lazy and stupid. Right. And uh, and I believe them. I absolutely believe them. And uh, I thought I was lazy and stupid because they told me I was. And, and I couldn't, whatever they did, whatever I tried, I could not read and write. Um, and then so I compensated with sport because I'm a big guy, I'm six foot six. And I compensated by playing then soccer. I was the first kid to swim the length of and all that. And then at the age of seven, I got asthma and I couldn't breathe. But then the doctor told me that, doctor told my parents, in those days they used to believe it was psychosomatic. So I couldn't read and write because I was lazy and stupid and I couldn't breathe because I was, because I was nuts. So I absolutely believe that I was somehow mentally deficient, weird. And um, uh, so I went through school, this clown, always compensating by making people laugh to get love, any kind of love. And of course, that foundation was what sent me into life. And that's why everything I did from then on was crazy. Absolutely crazy. Right. So, so what, how old were you when you left school, Simon? 15. Right. No, no, no qualification. You couldn't wait to get out, obviously. I yeah, I, mean, I used to, as a kid, I used to remember people saying, oh, you know, school years, happiest years of your life. I, just, I never understood that. It was, for me, it was hell. I just, I just wanted to get away. I was in the lowest stream in every class I was in, in the secondary modern school, as it was then. My parents wanted me to go to public school because they had the money, i.e. in England, public school being private. Right. Yeah. They had they had the money, but I couldn't pass the exam to get in. So I was a terrible failure in their eyes. They hated me for that. Um, they thought I'd let them down because I wouldn't read and write, and I I couldn't breathe. Wouldn't breathe. It wasn't couldn't. I wouldn't breathe. So so that was at, at the age of fifteen. I can't kind of. They did one very clever thing because they thought I was completely dumb. They put me in catering college because they knew that chefs could make good money and they didn't have to read, read and write. So that was quite a clever move. So they stuck me in catering college for two years where I did nothing but clown 
around and but I wasn't on the streets dying if you know what I mean so I I did that for two years and I learned how to cook and I learned how to you know sort of be a manager of a barman and all that stuff so it, that was quite handy and then uh, and then I became after that I became a chef uh but but drifting from one job to the next and then while I was a chef do you want me just to go on like this or are you going to yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Keep okay, going. It's, it's, it's very so, interesting. So, so I, as, a, as a chef, and, and, and the chef, I, as a chef, I used to watch the reps come in. Reps would come in to sell, you know, uh, food, wine, uh, cleaning products, uh, dishwashers, blah, 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 blah. So I, I went through the chef's Rolodex to all the, the reps, and I rang each of the company. I wanted to become a salesman because salesman had you know, a better life than a chef and, and they you got a car and all that so I'm quite eloquent and I'm quite entertain I could be quite entertaining when I need to be um so I, I got an interview and I became a sales rep and uh ha ha but having actually I, I've missed a few steps no that's that, that, so I became a sales rep and failed as a sales rep didn't didn't do the work and just drove the car and rest it. So then I left uh, that, and then I drifted into becoming an airport loader, uh, construction, farm worker, you know, all of that sort of stuff, until I eventually drifted into sales again with a company called Xerox. And Xerox gave me training, ranked Xerox in England. They gave me training. And from there, I parlayed that training into a sort of a career, effectively, and started and copiers and then the rest came from that yeah i mean xerox um were world renowned for for their their sales training um they were but but you you were trained in other areas as well oh they're fantastic i mean the, the, the training they offered was you know from the basic of being sales but then you know district manager then regional manager then you know so always had very fine plans and structures for, for taking you to the next step. So I, I became a zeroid, as we call it. You excelled in that environment, did you, Simon? Uh, I, I, I didn't initially because I was terrible at new business because I had no ability to accept rejection. Rejection to me was any kind of rejection. I just had no foundation, so I collapsed. But what I was really good at was um, uh, existing business, you know, so existing accounts. I was really good at upselling, so relationship building. So I was the clown at school, um, and I so I could, you know, I as a, as a major account salesman, I was fantastic, but not as a new business salesman. So that was, so yes, in in the sort of second wave of that, I became, I found my my place really. And how long how long did you stay there? Because I. I Presumably, you're still in England at this stage. You haven't left yeah, I, at that stage. I, I, at the peak of my success, when I was earning a lot of money, I was quite young. I was early 20s. At the peak of my success, I did what I always do, is sabotage myself and just I just took off to New Zealand with a friend of mine who was who I'd met. It was at Sirencester Agricultural College at Kiwi. And I went and worked on his farm for six months in Hawke's Bay. 
And then I, after that, I went down wow. to New Zealand. I was a photographer on, on Mount Hutt ski field for a season. Wow. Um, you're I talking about the dark ages in New Zealand. I, mean, I couldn't I... ski. I didn't know how to take pictures, but I, I lied and said I could and, and taught myself how. And we... <laughs> so you're so obviously... That for a you're, season. you're obviously... Go you actually are quite, quite intelligent. You said you couldn't oh, read and write. So I'm ridiculously you, intelligent. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you, so only, when, yes, the only person who didn't know I was right was me. <laughs> so, so when they asked you uh, at the airport, have you got anything to, to, to declare, you said only my brilliance, right? <laughs> Oscar Wilde. Yes. Yeah, no, I, that, 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 wouldn't, that wouldn't have occurred to me. It would, I, would have, I would have apologized. Look, hold on, I'm really stupid, but can I come in? That's how I would have dealt with it. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> I would either say that, or, well, I wouldn't say that because I was too afraid of that. I, that would be too real. I would have just made them laugh. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, mm. That's well, how I got sure. out of everything. I just it, made it's people very laugh. English. It's a very English sense of humor, though, isn't it? It's a very... Yeah. Um, self-effacing you know yeah, uh, yeah. you just was, write yourself off all the time exactly and it was uh it, it, and that's how i survived i was very lucky that that is what the english do is you know taking the piss out of yourself is mm. is really what english people do and and i did it in spades but i i made sure i didn't you know i, it, I was walking a tightrope because I, I couldn't let people see how really stupid i was mm. but i had to pretend i make jokes that sort of put me in a in a dim light it was a very stressful uh it's a very stressful life and and i and of course i never i never thought i had any value so i always lived a character so every morning i woke up i i i was it was almost like going on stage every morning and getting up going through the routine it was almost like showtime now you know off you go and and so it's very stressful. It's like living an act uh, every day. And of course, I compensated with alcohol and you know the usual stuff. Mm. So I always felt like hell in the morning. But I had to get up and then be the actor and go off and and, and do that. I didn't realise that feeling unhappy wasn't what everybody felt. I didn't understand that that wasn't the resting state of everybody. In in the world because I had never spoken to anybody. All of my friends were macho. Uh, I, my parents, I've never had a conversation, never ever had a conversation with my parents on any, on any intellectual level or any emotional level. And I never had any friends or I, I, I never, I never let, let my barriers down enough to let anybody in to actually do that. So that was the life I led. And of course, the more successful I became, the more fuel I threw on the fire. Right. So, you know, an insecure person making money is the worst thing you can do because you can always jump on a plane and escape. You can always buy a bigger car, a better suit, and a bigger dinner party, but you never feel happy. It only placates you for a brief moment. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I know, I know that well. It's, um, you know, I was going to say, this sounds, your story sounds a bit like mine, Simon, to be honest. <laughs> I think it sounds a lot like pretty well, you know, a great percentage of the people in the world. It yeah. seems to. Well, I think it's a, it's more common than than we like to um, admit. It's. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I've, so. I've, I've, been, I've been there, Simon. I've been there where you know that the the you know that the um, tinsel and baubles and the um, you know you you just acquire them and they give you fleeting 
Oh. So, I mean, Xerox, Xerox was the foundation of that. They used to, part of the great training, and it was really great training, but part of the training was to give you an ethos that you're better than everybody else and you're making more money. Therefore, you live a better life. You get it. So they wanted, effectively, the Xerox thing was to buy a bigger house than you could afford, the mortgage that you have to chase and put a pool in the garden and chase the debt and lease a car and chase right. that debt. So you're always chasing uh, more and more money, which makes you a better salesman. And the Xerox, I'm not being critical of that. It was, you know, we had a choice, but but it was it was the they instilled that ethos in us, and I and I chased that ethos. I did wherever yeah. I went, whatever job I did, wherever. But then you had a propensity to self sabotage when you when you got to the pinnacle of your 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 career, um, uh, and I know yeah. that well. It's it, yeah. can I ask you? Can I ask you? Did that happen when you got to a stage where you felt you'd mastered everything and it just became a little bit a touch repetitive? No, I never. Uh, no, I never felt I'd mastered anything. I always felt like a fugitive. I always felt I, I, this is the day I get busted. The higher up the tree I went, I always went, went thinking this is the day I get busted. Right. And I would, I would sabotage myself because I knew it was coming. You know what right. I mean? It was that. You so felt- I never, ever, never in my life did I relax and say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good. My self-esteem was non-existent. I never had a moment where I relaxed. I had moments where I had pleasure, but they were few and far between, and I never tried. Yeah, so that comes, that comes down to being... Um- it's interesting, actually. It comes down to being authentic with yourself, but um, I trust it. Well, I am now. I yeah, am yeah, now, well, but not then. Oh, if, yeah, if yeah. This, in, this interview 30 years ago would have been a whole different thing. <laughs> you, would have got, you would have got a stream of BS. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so you, you would have you would have seen a real character. So, so at what point or what age did you become – the permanent fugitive. Uh, well, I, I, so, so I went to New Zealand. I did the ski for a thing. I, my mate then decided to get married. Would I be the best man? So I came to Sydney for a year, and I didn't know what to do in Sydney. My, my father was a mad keen sailor. I sailed as a child, so I taught sailing out of the CYC and and Roscutters Bay and all that. So I had a, a year in Sydney, and then I went back to New Zealand to be his best man. Then I went back to England, and I got, I was going back to Xerox, but then I looked at, oh, this new thing, computers. So I got involved in computers just at the right time. Never, you know, it was nothing clever about it. It was just somebody was looking for a salesman in communications. So I, I rode the internet wave in the 80s. I was like, that whole thing, local area networking, bridging, routing, all that stuff. So that, that's how I, effectively, so I did that. In, in England during the 80s. And then I, so some success, and then I ran away to Australia because the success scared me. I got married um, to the wrong person and I was the wrong person for her and, and it was awful, it lasted a year, but she moved to Australia and she's grateful for that. So she's, she's here now, but that, that's a year of, it made no sense, but, it's what I did. And then I came to Australia on the back of, they had to advertise my job in Australia. It makes me laugh now. They, they advertised, they had to advertise for me to get to Australia. They had to advertise uh, my, 
the, the job I could do in every state in Australia. And it was effectively somebody who understood local area networking. Now, every kid at school now understands what local area networking is. We're talking now through IP. That, and that's how I got to Australia. I was the only one in, in Australia that could do this job. Weird now. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, it's Gino from Bondi Broker. In today's changing times, the importance of health and financial security has never been more important. At Bondi Broker, we work with you to improve your financial security by offering free financial health checks, assisting in reducing your debt, and gain competitive rates to improve your cash flow. Bondi Broker gets you in the best financial health so you can focus on what matters most. Visit our website today for your free consultation at bondibroker.com.au. Uh, a company called Ungerman Bass, a guy called Ralph Ungerman, uh, who was the, uh, he was, a, <clears throat> I don't know if you know, Research Park, was part of Xerox, ironically. He invented uh, local area networking, the mouse. He's, he, you may have heard the story of Steve Jobs going around a place called Research Park and stealing the mouse and stealing the GUI interface. Well, Ralph Ungerman was the guy that was in that lab for Xerox. And Xerox shut it down because it wasn't copiers and, and you know there was no future in it. So Steve Jobs took all the technology and formed Apple. And Ralph Ungerman formed Ungerman Bass. Now I worked for Ungerman Bass for Ralph in the UK for a couple of years mm. before I left there. And I went to Australia with Ungerman Bass. Mm. Uh, and, and that was leading edge stuff or token ring ethernet, all that sort of technology. And I was, I sort, of, I sort of moved up the chain of that to management, to managing director of, of after that startup. So I was running Asia Pacific for a lot of American startups, um, quite, have gone on to become quite big companies. But I, I, I introduced their products to the Asia Pacific. And the more and more, the more and more successful I was, the more and more money I made, and the nuttier I became, <laughs> and the more poured fuel on that mental fire. So, so things started to unravel. The more, the more success you had, and the more you rose yes. up the chain yes. of command. At which point did you realise that things were going a little bit nutty? Uh, I mean, there's one thing about going nutty, right? Most nutty people don't realise they're nutty. That's 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 the that's the luck of this whole thing. I went out with a I went out with a a narcissist. Oddly enough, I didn't know what a narcissist was. I now know she was a narcissist. Were you simply trying to re-establish the kind of relationships you had with your parents? <laughs> well, you've hit the nail right on the head, haven't you? Uh, I was so insecure that as long as the woman I was going out with was beautiful, physically. That's all I cared about, you know. So I was so insecure that that I attached what the part, partner looked like to my esteem. If she likes me, therefore I must have value, that sort of thing. So I didn't care about the mental stability or the integrity or the habits. Or, and, and through no thought of her own, she was she was a narcissist. But but we had a you know a couple of year relationship, and I was very much in love with her. And she was seeing a shrink, and she said, uh, "This is the relevance of that point." She said, "I want you to see a shrink." And I said, "Oh no, I don't need to see a shrink." Blah blah blah. But she said, "I think you need to see a shrink." 
And I went to see a shrink because she told me to, and because I loved her and, and, and I was afraid of losing her. And that set me on the path of, that was a, the beginning, that was, you know, a 25 year recovery. And, and it was the shrink that uh, I actually had a business letter for the shrink to, to look at. Uh, it was like you know, a year into therapy. I showed him a letter and said, I'm sending this letter. I want to get this message across. Does it do it? And he read it and said, oh, you've got dyslexia. I said, no, 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 I haven't. He said, why do you say I haven't got dyslexia? I said, because I haven't. Why are you you don't have dyslexia? Because my teachers told me, my parents, everybody told me. I'm, not, I'm just lazy and stupid. And he said, he said, well, can that be true? Look at your job. Look at where you're living. Look at, look at what you're earning. Can you be stupid and lazy? And I just wept for the whole hour. Even now, it gets me. But I just wept for that, for that hour whole hour uh, realizing that I was dyslexic and my whole life I'd been told I wasn't dyslexic so every time I would confront somebody and say maybe I'm dyslexic and they say oh no 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 dyslexics when you write backwards and I go oh fair enough you just can't spell because you're lazy and you can't read because you're stupid okay so so I I, I bought into that myth hook line and sinker I was I was anyway so the shrink convinced me that I wasn't lazy and stupid, but I was, well, he didn't convince me of that for quite a while, but he convinced me I was dyslexic. And it was the most extraordinary situation because I went home that day and because I ran computer companies, they'd been giving me, <coughs> in those days, PCs, <coughs> which I never used because I didn't write. So, uh, I had a garage full of PCs in boxes. So I went in the garage and got the latest one and took it out and plugged it in. And I started writing that day. And then a book fell out of me. It just came out of me. And I couldn't spell and I couldn't punctuate because I'd never written anything in my life, even a love letter or a postcard for fear of showing people how dumb and stupid I was. So I had never written a love letter or a postcard. But I sat down at the keyboard and I just started writing. I didn't care what it, the spelling, punctuation, just didn't care. I just, and it fell out of me. My first book just fell out of me. And then another book and another book and 20 screenplays and short stories. And it just fell out of me. And then I got an editor who just did the darts. Yeah, like, right. as the, in, the great, in the great movie, um, Get Shorty. You could just get somebody else to put in the commas and shit. So, so it was like, wow! It just blew my mind. What was because, the name of that? You know, first? it was a, the first one. Well, the first one, it got a name eventually. It's on Amazon. It's uh, it's called uh, um, another self, and it and it's uh, and what it is. It's because I've always loved history, but I've never read about history. I've always watched. I've learned everything I've learned through documentaries. Luckily, I grew up in England, so BBC is everywhere. Uh, I learned how to behave through movies, TV shows. I learned history and everything I know yeah, about, from documentaries. So, and I love history. So I, start, I set a character, that first book, I set a character. Who is me? She's a woman, but it's me. And I set her in Rome at the time at the end of the Republic. So, uh, pre-Caesar, Gaius Marius and Sulla, that era. And I set her as the protagonist, but 
the events that ended the Roman Republic. But um, no. so, the, so the book is on three levels. It's, it, it, I now realize it's on three levels. The history is accurate. So you can read the book and get history of Rome absolutely accurately. The second one is you can read the protagonist story, which is how she influences the end of the Republic. And the third one, and this is the most intimate one, is when you read her, read my pain, you read my journey. It's just, so if you want to see what it's like to be somebody with no self-esteem, this character will give you a window into it. My shrink, my shrink, reads it for his own edification to to help him understand his patience as it were because it does it just lays bare what it feels like to be like that and what was it called again simon it's called another self okay i just want the listeners to mark that that down okay and then the 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 follow-on to that is another is another tribe and that's set in the american civil war and then the third one is another war, which is set in the First World War, <coughs> but a similar character through each. Right. What um, What made you choose um, those settings, wars? Uh, the first one was self esteem, and I, I I loved Rome, so uh, I so I set it in Rome, but it's about self esteem really. The second one I. Uh, there are, there, are, there are three elements in, you know, there are three elements that I believe human beings change. We can't change our sexuality. We can't change our skin color. We can't change our height. We can't change our DNA. You know, there are so many things we can't change, but you can change how you see yourself. That's self-esteem. That's the first one. The second one is racism. You can change how you see racism. Mm. And the third one uh, is another war, and we can change. Oops. I believe in well, there are things that are set in our DNA, and there are three things in my, you know, there are many more, but there are three major things that I wanted to address and to analyze those three things that we can change if we put our mind to it. Simon, you cut out right at the third thing. What was the third thing? Mm. Oh, the third thing is uh, war. How we how we um, how we respond to it's a human instinct to go to war, but we can change it. Whereas as, as racism is a human instinct because of our history and it's tribal, but we can change it. Right. And our, our 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 instinct to go to war is is instinctive, but we can change it. The other things we can't change, but we can change those three things. So we've arrived at um, wow. Well, this journey is. Uh... It's ginormous, really. Somebody should write this stuff. Somebody should write a book. I should write a book about the guy who wrote these books, but Simon, well, I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm toying with a, a, um, uh, a autobiography for myself, and the title of it is "Someone Else's Life" because I've. I've lived. I've lived somewhere. I was just curious, though. Like, where did you, these books fall out of you? Uh, where were you when these books were falling out of you? And I was living in a, had... living in an apartment in uh, in Neutral Bay, Mossman, that area. You know, right. lovely views of the city. I just sat down one day yeah. and wrote. 
Well, that'll do it to you. Uh, that, that those kind of views. But um, have you yeah. have you have you had the same therapist or psych, psychiatrist for twenty five years, or or you've moved from one to another, or like has he or she followed you um, on your journey? Or how 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 has it played out? I. Um... But he was he was the three year sort of beginning. He was the he was the you know the he cracked the nut as it were, and then and then it but it but it wasn't a quick fix. It wasn't you know I've had I only really this year I've made the major breakthrough. So it's been a long journey, and it's not over yet because I still I still find myself falling back into that mindset where I have to I have to consciously myself out of depression and sadness and i know how i've got the tools now i know how to do it but it you know so but uh, you can't go through 60 years of instability 65 years of instability and just flick a switch it doesn't work that way the brain is my brain is elastic and plastic and it and it and it retains all of those memories and i and i have to dredge them up forgive them move on and there, there are so many of them and if i if i'm not cognitive if i'm not conscious of them mm. they can creep up on me i find myself sad and don't know why and i've got to go digging and find out what moment 25 years ago was that mm. and then i have to give it and move on you were in neutral bay you've you wrote the three books when did you buy the van and start just traveling what 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 spurred you know spurred that on? Uh, well, I was in Goa. Um, I'd, I'd lived, as I said, for many years on beaches in Vietnam. So I did I did I did the kind of you know living. I took a a little hut on the beach, always air conditioned. Usually it wasn't that bad. Um, but on the beach, there'd be a restaurant on the beach in Vietnam and Cambodia, Samoa, Fiji. And after many many years, I ended up in um, Goa. Yep. And uh, I, I got. Uh, living in a hut by the beach and I got peritonitis respectively food poisoning and it hurt so I went to the little market next door and bought some painkillers which shut my kidneys down and so they had to carry me out of the hut through the restaurant on a stretcher and stick me in an ambulance and um, they were taking me to hospital and I said to the the woman in the ambulance a very nice lady I said just take me to the public hospital she said no i can't there are people dying in corridors uh for, for want of a bed i've got to take if i can't afford it i can't afford it assuming it was going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars like america or mm-hmm. wherever so they, i went there they they uh, did all the tests they stuck me in an icu and i was touch and go for about five days in the icu around me were actually dying of peculiar things and they put in a, a uh, shunt into my, I think it's called shunt into my archery here in my neck. And they were just about to do dialysis. And on the fifth day, my kidneys kicked back in. So another couple of days in the ICU, then two more weeks in a private room recovering because I'd lost so much condition. And the nurses had to go out with my ATM card and get money and bring back food for me. But I also, you know, they just took. 50 bucks and fed their whole family for a month because it was very cheap but you know um but they but they saved my life really i mean the doctors said we nearly lost you several times 
So then, I, and I thought, okay, well, the bill's going to come and it's going to be $250,000 and I'll, I'll have to do the dishes or something. So when the, the bill when the bill came, it was 3000 So then I flew back to Australia and I felt that I'm getting old. I shouldn't be risking my health in third world countries. So I wanted to be in Australia, but I didn't want to settle down. So I bought a van and I traveled around Australia just living on beaches and every every beach in australia is so good i mean you have a you have a clean ablution block showers every everywhere has a free barbecue mm. and you've got these wonderful beaches everywhere and i just swim every day that's my exercise and i write every day so uh, so i would you know I've, I've been doing that for five years until covid hit it sounds like an ideal lifestyle really the traveling mm. around the you know australia and saying to a friend I was saying to a friend yesterday who was thinking of doing it, but it suits me because I'm very much a loner. I have I have many friends and very good friends around the world, and I have friends here, but I'm I love my own company. So for me to sit by a beach, swim in the morning, have a coffee, shower, spend the next few hours writing, and then go to the RSL club for a twenty dollar roast, that's my idea of heaven. But a lot of people who need to be around friends and family, it's not it's not for them. Yeah, the only thing missing was the uh, the nineteen seventies combi camper van. Uh, what do you um, what do you get around in? Well, I used to I used to have a I bought a big thing, you know, with all the bells and whistles, and I, I couldn't park by the beach because the rangers. Uh, I had to park in the parks. I didn't want to park in parks. I wanted to be right by these beautiful. So when that that van, the first van, blew up in Port Hedland. Now I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ever been. You're in Western Australia, aren't you? Ah, uh, no, New South Wales. Close. Oh, so, so if you if uh, if you go north from Perth and go far enough, you get to a place called Port Hedland, which is six hundred kilometers south of Broome, and it might as well be on the moon. And that's where my van blew up. So I I, just, I couldn't get it fixed. I couldn't get it cured. So I I took off from there and went to Vietnam for three months, and then I came back. And the next van I bought was a smaller. And in the back, it has a, a big king-size bed, but very little else. It's got, you know, I, I've got a fan and a little fridge and all that sort of stuff. Because I found with the first van, I never used any of the facilities. I never, I never used the oven. I never used the shower. I never, all I did was sleep in it. And I lived outside of the van. So I didn't really need a van. So this smaller one looks like I'm taking the dogs for a walk. So they're me. They will now probably if they listen to this. But so it's ideal. No, we don't let rangers on our show. The parking rangers leave you alone. There's the a parking rangers leave you alone, and you can park right next to the beach. There's what? There's what? There's a fourth thing that you can't that you can't change, and that is parking officers, um, and and our disdain for them. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's crazy, right? We must have fifteen thousand kilometres of coastline, and yet they they're bloody well everywhere stopping you from parking right next to the beach. They've always got a limp and a pen mark at their top pocket where they put their pen in, right? Yeah, and I, I, I feel sorry for the Rangers, actually, because um, the ones I've met, and I've met a few, you can imagine, they all they want to do is save bloody dolphins and penguins and, and bloody look after the forest, but they're lumbered with this bloody parking duty, and they don't want to do it. Mm. But they, but it's been given to them because the cops don't want it. it. They, they always, in fact, there's very, there are only a couple that have been quite militant 
but they always just say knock on me and say come on off you go they don't give me a ticket that's good so i there's a double-edged sword there that they, they don't want to do it either they would rather be in the bush saving koalas yeah right i think i think yeah. um I, I don't think you've um spent i don't think you've spent enough time in the eastern suburbs of, of <laughs> I was going to say, especially the Waverley Council. Uh, you know, you know. I, I tell yeah. you, I tell you a little story, a real shock to shock to my system. Is the time I went to Tasmania. Of course, I dro- drove down there and went across on the ferry, and I stayed over the one hour limit in the parking spot on a main street in Hobart, and I was in a cafe, and I saw the parking officer writing me a ticket, and I ran across the road. I said, "Oh no." No, and she was very apologetic. She said, darling, you know, I'm sorry, you just stayed over the limit. I had to issue this ticket, and I was expecting Sydney prices. She said, but don't worry, you can take your time paying it, and, you know, we have a payment scheme in place in Tasmania because I noticed the New South Wales licence plates. And she she issued me the ticket, and I thought, I was thinking, oh, it's got to be, you know, $120 like in Sydney, $30. $30. (laughs) And a, Did you say I mean, thirty dollars or thirty dollars? That's, that's cheaper than a Wilson's car park in Sydney for an hour. Exactly. So, exactly. So the thirty dollars didn't kill me, but it it told me a lot about the state of Tasmania that they have a payment scheme in place for a thirty dollar ticket. Exactly, um, yeah. yeah, but but anyway, the the thing is that that's that's what they're like uh, in Sydney. They're pretty outrageous, and um, you're lucky. I think, I, I think they kind of it's that it's that you know it's. Uh, it's like that that notion of friendly rugby game. It starts off friendly, but as soon as you get hurt, you just go full on. So it's that. So if you're a parking ranger, you start off not wanting to do it, but then somebody abuses you and say, right, then. and then it, you get so thick skinned because you get abused every day that you just you go yeah. you're doing your job. I, I think it's that human escalation. Yeah. For the ones out in the on the wilds and the beaches, you know, that and, and really in Western Australia, they're kind of really cool dudes and they they don't like doing it so 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 what's what's next simon well um i'm here i've just bought my stinger suit ah um, yes because of the irukandji right yeah we got they got the nets here for the box jellyfish but the irukandji I, I swim i swim at trinity beach here and they get through the mesh mm, mm. a couple of couple of people spent a couple of days in the hospital last week here so tell us a little bit about what that does for listeners who don't know anything about Irukandji. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I, I actually was interesting enough. I watched uh, the lifeguard the other day. So for the people who don't know, up in far north Queensland, we have these big, they're booms, if you will. They're, they're uh, white plastic booms, and they go out. They're 50 metres across, which is an Olympic pool, and then they, the boom then comes back to the beach. And suspended above that floating boom, below that floating boom, is a net. So they've tried to make the net small, but it gets filled filled with um, weed and, and growth. So the, uh, the smallest size net, diamond-shaped net they can have, stops the box jellyfish, which will kill you, but it doesn't stop the irukandji, which is minute. And I was every day the uh, lifeguard goes down and, and sweeps back and forth with a net. It finds irukandji or not. And the lifeguard showed me one the other day in his little test tube. 
they're just impossible to see. They're mm. just mm. tiny, but they cause agony. They might not kill you unless you have uh, certain, you know, health conditions, but they cause agony for eight hours. People go to hospital and they, it, you know, have on painkillers and, and the like. I think it's uh, they can kill you, can't they? They they can paralyze you as well. I hear. I I believe so. And and if you've got uh, medical conditions, certainly like a heart condition or a breathing condition, whatever, it can cause terrible uh, and can cause death. Yes. Absolutely. And what do they look like? What do they look like? It's, it's uh, you can't even see them, right? They look like a um, uh, they're the size of a very small marble, and they look like nothing they look transparent like water mm. there's not a not a blue element like uh like like um like a you know a, a, a blue bottle or there's there's no they don't seem to have any um tentacles like a box they're just this little round jelly like a size of a sweetie like a like mm. a candy it's amazing it's amazing. It's some, I, I often wonder, like, what what function they uh, these these creatures perform. I mean, sometimes I come across a um, a sea of what are those um, clear clear lumps? They like salts. Are they salts? The I don't know. They're, they're, they're clear jelly. It's just clear jelly. They're round balls. Um, yeah. And you swim through a sea of them, and you think, firstly, how do they swarm like that? Like, how do they know to? Because they don't have any, they don't look like they perform any function, and that they have. The Urukanji was designed to um, sting parking officers, actually. <laughs> right. Well, oh, okay. I've always had, I've always wondered because I spend a lot of time down at um, at the beach as well, Simon, um, and I've grown up on the, the coast, bum as well. and I'm a bit of a bum, yes. And uh, I've always wondered what the why the blue bottles all come in together like i obviously the wind blows them in but where do they live do they just sit out there in the middle of the ocean twiddling their thumbs waiting for the the southeasterly to come in i don't know i don't know why the blue bottles do but i do know i was watching a documentary on this not blue bottles but on larger jellyfish larger jellyfish actually are quite responsible for circulating the ocean apparently right it's like a great percentage because some of them and 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 there are places where they do swarm and they follow the sun in in great swarms yeah i was watching it it's a, it's a david attenborough um documentary yeah. i don't know what it's i'll called. have to get it i'll have to watch it and it's either, so but, but they actually do as they move in on mass they actually do they force cold water from the bottom to the top and, and vice versa. So they create a sort of a, mm. a circulation, which is important to algae and all that. Mm. So mm. everything has a purpose. There you go. And, 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 and it's even more bizarre knowing that uh, the blue bottles are actually four organisms that come together and create a blue bottle, four different DNAs. That's right, yes, yeah. Amazing. And no one knows how that happens or why. I saw that on QI, yeah. Amazing. So... Um, this has been a f- fantastic episode for us. I, I, I think George would agree, Simon. Could I, is there a, just a second, just for a quick uh, mention of something? Sure. I've been, I've been, uh, um, the last couple of years, I've been on an apology tour 
that is catching up with old girlfriends and relationships to really kind of explain it wasn't you, it was me. Um, and anybody, if any of them watch this, please reach out and I would love to buy them a meal. I, for example, I, my ex-wife, who, um, I had lunch with her at her place last year and she spent, uh, and it was very cathartic for her, she spent three hours berating me and said mea culpa, maxima mea culpa. And, and at the end of it, she cried. And, and as she said, it helped her. And I've helped a few, not helped, but I've, I've done the same with a few other ex-girlfriends and I'd love to do it with it all who knew me or anybody I've upset. And that's a few, but, but it wasn't because I was malicious. It was because I was lost. And a little, another little point there that's amusing is my ex-wife finally at the end of lunch, I was leaving and she, she said, and by the way, she got my books out. She bought them on Amazon. She said, I bought these books wanting to hate them well they're very good so that was the best that was the best (laughs) the best reference i've ever had that's good that's fantastic i hope that's on your profile (laughs) (laughs) all of my forgivery all of my forgive um recovery tour my apology tour that's all confidential i don't make reference anyway to those well, Simon, it, you've you've had a life well lived, and I and I think you've still got a long way to go. As long as you don't become a, as long as you don't become a parking officer and then go swimming in the uh, in the nets. <laughs> well, the first Simon, thing I should do at the end of this is go swimming. Yeah, I, you should. Yep. You I, have should. A working, I have a working title for 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 a book on um, on Brett and my my life. Um, um, and it's and it's called Two Fat Middle Aged Blokes Trying to Make Sense of the Modern World. Do you think that's too long a title? I think it's very catchy. <laughs> Simon, it's <laughs> been put another word in there. Yeah. It's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure, Simon. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank You've you, been, Simon. You've been terrific. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Yeah.